0: Welcome to the Vineyard Northridge Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our senior pastor, Neil Haney. For more information about our church, visit our website at vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge. And uh, this week I'm going to kind of round out our, our uh, uh, conversation about identity And I'm going to ask you a question. It's probably the most important question anyone has ever asked you. If it's not the most important question, it's tied for first. And the question is this. Do you live, in regard to your relationship with God, do you live from acceptance or for acceptance? When it comes to your relationship with God, do you live from acceptance or for acceptance? Because the answer to that question, the real answer to that question, determines how your life is going to be experienced on this planet while you're alive, while you walk through this life. How you answer that question in reality determines if if this life is going to be a life of joy and peace and excitement and, and just like an adventure with your God or it's going to be Frustrating and, and, and uh, a drudgery With lots of anxiety and lots of fear And, and, and lots of, of, of questioning And constantly being uh, ill at ease with God And that is no way to live So I'm kind of I'm giving away the punchline right off the bat Because we do live Or we should live from acceptance, not for it Now, Um, I was with a group of guys recently, around my age, I'm in my early 60s, and I just had a birthday, so I'm in my later early 60s now, but um, uh, the, the question was tossed out, what's your greatest fear? And over the half of those guys answered something to the effect of, my greatest fear is I get to the end of my life, and I haven't pleased God. I haven't met the requirements to get into heaven. I haven't lived. In other words, I, I reached the end of the ladder and realized that I was propped up against the wrong wall. You know, I, 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 don't, wanna, I, I don't want you to, to live like that. I don't want you to live like that. I, I had a seminary professor that said, uh, you know, we talk a lot about theology around here. And he said, you know. I'm more concerned about not your theology, but your neology. And he, what he meant by that is how you experience God when you get on your knees, when you begin to pray, when you begin to interact with Him. Is that something that's joyful and exciting and peaceful? Or is it filled with anxiety because you're not sure if you're okay? You know, a, a lot of us grew up in homes where. Um, Maybe we had nurturing moms, but dad wasn't quite so nurturing. You might have had a dad that was pretty stern, pretty harsh, pretty demanding and critical. And I have a great dad. My dad will turn eighty-eight this this August, and he's been a wonderful dad. Uh, And he came to Christ when I was I was just going into the seventh grade, and uh, he started attending. He had never attended church with us. until that time, but Mom talked him into going to church with us uh, when we were entering into when I was entering into what we called junior high school. Sixth grade was still grade school when I was. Yeah, that's how old I am. <laughs> but anyway, um, my dad was my dad was pretty tough on me until he came to Christ. Uh, he was very left brain, very very mathematical, scientific, very very logical, rational. I was more like my mom, very heart-oriented, very right-brain, very, very—I uh, um, don't know—into the arts. I was, you know, I just was—I was not the the left-brain, logical guy that my dad was, and he really couldn't relate to me as a boy, and he got frustrated with, with me quite a bit. I remember uh, trying to do my homework, my math math homework. He had a minor in mathematics. He only lacked six hours getting a major in mathematics. I couldn't add three and three. And why do they? Why in the world do they start teaching fractions to third graders? I mean, come on, seriously? I couldn't figure this stuff out, and my dad would help me with my math homework. And that was an hour and a half of pure torture for both of us. And he would get so frustrated with me because I couldn't get it. And I remember when I was about four years old... One of the first times that he and I were like together, you know, doing something together, we were working on a project, and this was my mom's idea to put us together on this project. We were building tomato boxes. Now, I'm four years old, or five, I don't know, it was pretty young, it was preschool. And I just remember that um, I wasn't doing it Right. And uh, my dad really made, made it clear that, that I wasn't doing it right, that, you know, he, he was just on me. And in my little four-year-old heart, I don't think I processed this, you know, like, like rationally. Pro- like I said, I wasn't rational. I, I didn't process this like, oh, I see, I am this way. But, but in my little heart that was being wounded, there were wounds being written on my heart, there's something wrong with me. I am fundamentally flawed I don't understand what that is or why it's there, but somehow it's my fault. And that's the conclusion that I drew about myself. And then I grew up around that wound that got reinforced over and over and over again until, until I, like I said, my dad came to Christ. By, by the time I was in high school, my dad and I were really close, and our relationship completely changed. And he's one of the most godly men I know at this point in my life. But I grew up under that kind of scrutiny, that kind of frown, that kind of "you're not okay." There's something wrong with you, and so, and so I, you know, that our parents basically are God to us when we're growing up. I've watched Wes with, with, uh, with Daisy, and and she's she's going to be in good shape. Uh, I, re- I mean, I really believe that what he said up here, he meant, you know, but but I'm I'm really encouraged by what I've what I've seen so far. But you know, those wounds invited some spirits of worthlessness and self-hatred that I carried for the better part of 60 years. I finally got delivered from that stuff. But I, you know, I'm sure I'm the only one here who struggled with, you know, self-worth and, and, and you know, trying to please God by performance living for acceptance, not from acceptance. But if there's one other person here that's ever struggled with that, this sermon's for you. And I really have good news. You know, the gospel means good news. So I have, I have good news for you. And I'm going to read some good news to you right now from God's Word in Luke chapter 15. You know, Luke was the only Gentile writer of the of the New Testament. He was Luke's doctor and traveled with Luke. And when they went to Jerusalem after a number of years, he met with the disciples and the apostles, and he began to interview them. And my understanding is from his interviews with them came uh, came this wonderful gospel of Luke. And Luke really seemed to like people like me who were flawed and who struggled with their worth and you know that's why you get stories like the story of Zacchaeus where Jesus goes to Jericho and he seems to have one thing in mind. In fact it's one person. It's this outcast, this tax collector, this little short guy that probably was picked on all his life. He was short and probably not very athletic and he probably didn't fit in well with his with his peers, but he had a he had an an excellent mind. And so when he got old enough he used that mind to get even with his peers and became this tax collector for Rome and he was an outcast among his own people and Jesus went there with the express purpose of going to his house for lunch and it changed his life it transformed his life not because Jesus gave him a list of rules to follow and said now you little tax collector you better repent of tax collecting and you better shape up and you know uh, no he, he just loved him unconditionally he just, he just loved on him during lunch and it changed this man's life. And so here in in the Gospel of Luke, in in chapter 15, I love how how Luke introduces this. I just love it. Now, the tax collectors, talking about people like Zacchaeus and Matthew and people like that, and sinners, quote unquote, I love it, puts it in quotes here, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, you would think that when God showed up, sinners, the tax collectors, would be running for the hills, right? Seriously. Seriously. But no, they're they're drawn to him. There's something about Jesus. There's something about Jesus who came to reveal God, who came to reveal the heart of the Father that just drew sinners to himself. But the religious people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, muttered. Don't you like that word, muttered? It's kind of an onomatopoeia. Do you know what that means? Yeah. It mean, it's a word that sounds like what you're doing. So they were muttering, okay? And they were saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Oh, scandal of scandals. Because you see, eating with someone was almost the most intimate thing you could do with another person. Marital intimacy was the only thing that was more intimate than sharing a meal with someone. And so Jesus was taking these people into his his company and and having intimacy with them in in this incredible way. And Jesus told them this parable. And he actually tells three parables. And for sake of time, I'm going to skip the first two. I'm going to cut straight to the the parable of the prodigal son because this is where we see the heart of God. This is where we discover out of Jesus' own mouth that we can live from acceptance and not for it. This is awesome. So let me, just, let me just walk you through this. And I'm going to walk through this parable like a tour guide. I'm going to stop and I'm going to point out things that are important. And hopefully it's going to open the scripture to you that, that I'm reading in a new way. Maybe things you've never seen before. But super important to the point of we live from acceptance, not for it. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So he would have given two-thirds of his estate to his older son, who we learn about later in the story, and one-third to his younger son. But here's the problem with what was asked of of the father. The younger son was committing all kinds of... he, He was just... Blowing through barrier after barrier of inappropriate, uh, even culturally um, condemned behavior by asking for his inheritance before his father was dead. He was basically, in all intents and purposes, saying, I can't wait for you to die, so give me what's mine now, what I'm going to inherit when you die. Give it to me now because I can't wait for you to die. That was an insult of insults. To a Jew, Jewish landowner, to a to a Jew, Jewish uh, wealthy, respectable person in that kind of culture, and so instead of of doing what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were expecting, because they're all through this story, they're waiting for Jesus to to, to get to the point where this <clears throat> this uh, son of his is dragged to the town square. They have this ritual where they burn corn and they. They do all kinds of stuff, and at the end of the ritual, they stone the kid to death for being disrespectful to his dad, to his father. So they're waiting for the punchline where this kid gets stoned to death. <laughs> so Jesus says, well, he, he divided you know, his wealth between the two sons. Important to remember. Not long after that, the younger son got, got together all he had and set off for a distant country, to get as far away from his dad as he possibly could. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. You can just use your imagination on that one, but not too much, please. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. I love that. Uh, If you were a part of the the series we just finished, being in need and being a failure is, is a very good thing because it sets us up to need God and to receive all God has for us. But, but it's, it's a good thing in the story that he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who would have been a Gentile who sent him out to his fields to feed pigs, unclean animals according to Jewish law. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Of course, we're talking about inedible stuff, but he was so hungry even the slop smelled good, looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and he prepares this speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. He's going home. But he's going home for acceptance. He's going home to earn back his father's acceptance. He's he's going home to be a hired servant so that he he can begin to earn wages to begin to pay his father back for the wealth that he had squandered. To get a square meal and maybe a roof over his head. That's all that he could wish for, hope for. That's that's all we can hope for. Helpless, hopeless, needy, dependent, weak, sin-stained sinners. When we come to God, that's all we can really hope for. But listen to this. But while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. How was that possible? I'll tell you how that was possible. Day after day. Night after night, that father looked down that road to see if this might be the day that my son comes home. I don't know if you know Jesus. I don't know if you know the father, but he's watching for you to come home if you've never come home. Or if you feel distant from him, he's not just watching for you, he's calling for you to come home. His father's heart is aching to embrace you. His father saw him and was filled with anger and rage and wanted to take that son into the town square and see him stoned to death. (laughs) Not. (laughs) That's right. Filled with compassion, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, guys, you've got to understand Jewish culture. You've got to understand... What was taking place here that was so out of character for a Jewish gentleman, a landowner, a wealthy Jewish gentleman who was well-respected in his community? First of all, a Jewish man never ran anywhere. That was a sign of indignity. It was was a sign of humiliation to run. And you never exposed your ankles. And in order to run, he had to lift his, his robe his skirt, or he would trip in about the third step and fall on his face. So he had to lift his his robe, expose his ankles, and then run towards his son. In doing so, he was taking his son's humiliation because his son was returning probably half naked, covered in pig slop, smelling like who knows what, like a dump. And he was coming back to face whatever consequences the community was going to to uh, exact on him. And so the father is absorbing the shame, the humiliation, and to some extent, even the guilt. And not only does he run to meet him, he gives him this huge bear hug and plants a kiss right on his, his uh, smelly, pig slop stained cheek. It's just scandalous. Already, Pharisees are beginning to fall over and faint as he's telling this. And then the son starts his speech Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father's like, he just puts his hand right over his mouth. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. feet Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And And then they begin to celebrate. Again, scandalous, absolutely scandalous. The best robe would have belonged to who in the house? The Father. Does that sound vaguely familiar that our... Shame and nakedness and pig slop is covered with a robe that belongs to <laughs> the Father, namely Jesus. And then he, he puts sandals on his feet. That, that was a restoration of sonship. No slave or hired servant wore shoes, sandals. That would, that would have been reserved only for the members of the household. He's immediately being restored to sonship. And then he, the most mind-blowing thing of all is that he gives his son the family signet ring. It's like the family credit card. If you get the signet ring of the family, you can go into town and you can buy and sell and do anything you want to financially because you have the signet ring. All you have to do is push that into the, the wax or show it to the, the vendor and and whatever you our purchasing goes on the account of, of, of the father. And so he's, he's squandered his, a third of his father's wealth. And as, as soon as he returns, hasn't even really been given the, the chance to go through his repentance speech and asked to be made a hired servant. His father has already given him the best robe, covered his pig slop, covered his nakedness. He has restored him as a son and he's given him the family credit card. Again, more Pharisees and teachers of the law—they're just falling like you know, like uh, lumber, all around. I mean, I, I think Jesus is looking at all these—they're they're passed out, you know—and and and, and uh, what few are still standing are wobbly. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, "What's going on?" Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. Hallelujah. There's a party happening, not only. So, so he walks his son back to the house and he calls all his friends and neighbors in, the ones that should be stoning him to death, and they kill the fattened calf. They kill the calf that's there for celebration like the one they would have killed on the 4th of July. To you know celebrate Independence Day or whatever, they, they kill that calf and throw a party like he's a conquering hero, come home. Does, does that blow your mind? Does that does that does that like like what sense does that make? He humiliated his father, he he squandered his wealth, he went as far away from the, the far country, as far away from his dad as he could get. And the only thing he's done at this point is just come home. That's all he's done. And they're celebrating him like he's he's a, a conquering hero. Talk about the gospel, man. Talk about good news. Now, the older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, and this is just really interesting, this reaction. He says to his father, literally in the Greek, Look you, total disrespect, total, like he's angry, he's frustrated, he cannot believe. He's basically speaking for the Pharisees and the teacher, the religious people. And listen to what he says, Look you, all these years I've been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your orders. I have kept the law perfectly. Everything you've asked me to do, I've done it. And yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. And then the father's compassionate heart again towards his older son. He says, my son... You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. That's literally true. He had given him, it says at the beginning of the parable, he split his possessions between his two sons. He literally had two-thirds of what his father owned. And yet he viewed his father as a taskmaster. As a boss, as a slave owner, as, as someone, I've slaved away and obeyed you perfectly. I've never committed anything, that, you know, done, I've done everything you've asked me to, and yet you've never even given me a goat. And he's like, I gave you the ranch, I gave you the farm, what do you want? You have everything I have and you're always with me. Apparently that didn't mean a lot to this boy because he didn't understand the heart of his father. See, guys, you got to understand the heart of your father. I'm so glad that Dennis preached what he did last week because he talked about the goodness of God, that God is good and he loves us. And what Wes said is absolutely true. And we sang that song uh, this morning about your love's uncomplicated. You love me just the way I am. And when we stand before him, we're not standing before him to try to earn his approval, to try to earn his acceptance. We're standing before him, accepted in Christ, clothed in Christ, the Father's robe of righteousness, clothed in Jesus. You don't exist in any other way except in Christ Jesus. I I wish that people would just call me Neil in Christ Jesus because that's who I am. And it's Carol in Christ Jesus. And it's Lisa in Christ Jesus. And it's James in Christ Jesus. Becca in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ Jesus. We're, we're, we're wrapped in the robe of righteousness. Now, thanks, thanks to the blood of Jesus, all the, the pig slop has been cleansed away. We're not just hiding our pig slop. It's gone. The cross dealt with that. But we've been, we've been made sons of, of, and daughters of the living God And he's given us the family credit card. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. We're seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus already. Paul, when he said that, he wasn't talking about uh, pie in the sky by and by. He was talking about right now. We sit at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. You died and your life is hidden with Christ and God with Christ in God. We're already a part of the family of the Trinity. We've been invited into the family of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forget about the angels. We're, we're, we're in the family. It just I, I, you know, I, I don't know if we'll ever, this side of heaven, be able to wrap our brains around who we are and where we are and what we are, made in the image of God, filled with His Spirit. So what determines your feeling of acceptance before God? How do you feel when you come into the presence of God? Do you look forward to getting up in the morning and spending time with Him, or do you dread it like a root canal? I mean, honestly, let's be honest. How do you feel in His presence? Are you ashamed, or do you feel joy? Do you feel condemned and guilty? Or do you feel like you're coming into the presence of your best friend and your loving father? I mean, who wouldn't want a father like this guy, huh? But so often we feel like the older brother, trying, slaving, trying to obey, shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone. There's no joy in that. You were always with me, and everything I have was yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. That's a key theme, by the way, of the of the Gospel of Luke. When Nicodemus stood up and said, and said, If I've cheated anyone, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give him twice what I stole, what I cheated him out of. And he made his little speech and Jesus says salvation has come to this house today because this man too, this tax collector, this outcast, this traitor to his own people is also a son of Abraham. And so are you and me. We're sons of Abraham. We're daughters of Abraham. If we believe in him but how do you feel in his presence? Do you live from acceptance or for acceptance? I just want to remind you that all over the New Testament, I mean, Paul and and Peter and, and John, they just go out of their way to explain to you that God is love. And in Jesus... He has become, the writer of Hebrews, he has become the ultimate sacrifice. He has perfected forever those who are being made holy. Aren't you glad it's in that order? We're perfected before we're made holy? (laughs) We've been perfected in our spirits, and then God is working in our minds and our wills and our emotions to renew our minds, to line our wills up with God, and to heal our damaged emotions. And to fill us with peace and joy beyond expression. Guys, we have everything to celebrate. The good news is really good news. You are fully accepted in Christ. And everything Christ has done for you and done to you (laughs) has made you acceptable to God the Father. And you're embraced. Now can I just use my sanctified imagination and invite you into my sanctified imagination for a moment? Because this is not in the Scripture. But I want you to think with me about something. So that we know that the older brother decides to skip the party, but the younger son is sitting there eating, you know, uh, barbecue beef, probably drinking wine. He's probably, like, there's dancing, there's singing. The father gets up and makes a speech on how glad he is to have his son home. And he makes no reference to what he's been doing. He's just talking about how much he loves him. And the next morning, let's just just imagine this, the next morning, the sunlight's filtering through the the window in in the boy's bedroom. And his eyes blink open, And he can still feel the, you know, a little bit of the party still going on in his heart. And he wakes up and he's not waking up uh, on the ground uh, with the morning sun beating down on him, beginning to heat up for the day that he's going to have to spend slopping the pigs. But he finds himself, he realizes as he blinks open, his eyes open, that he's in his own bedroom in his father's house on a feather bed with his father in the next room who loves him dearly and is so glad to have him home. And he can smell breakfast cooking. What do you think's running through that boy's mind and heart? What do you think? Oh, I'm so sorry I came home. I hope dad's not mad at me. No. Oh, I hope he doesn't make me do anything today. He ran away from that the first time. The oppression of it all. How many teenagers experience that? I remember my brother talking about how how oppressed he felt in my parents' home. And I was like, you are a moron, dude. (laughs) You get three squares, you get a roof over your head, you... I, I, I don't know, for some reason I was just the compliant older child, you know I kind of liked my parents or. Something. My brother couldn't wait to get away from them. And then later that changed, because he, he went through a very similar thing to this, honestly. I mean, almost identical, except it wasn't pigs. Slop. he was He was just partying at college and being an idiot. But anyway, when he did come home, things changed drastically for him. And he found out how much my dad actually loved him. But anyway, that's another story. But think about waking up in that house, smelling breakfast. Do you think that boy was begrudging getting up and going out and, and working on the farm that he now was still a part of? He didn't, he didn't own anything at that point. He had already squandered his one-third but he got to be a part of what his father was doing. He got to be a part of working the farm. He, I mean, I imagine that if, if he said, if the father said, son, uh, there's a fence down on the back 40 back there, there's, there's some, there's a, and the cows are getting out, would you, would you go mend that fence? I believe he would have gone out there with a skip in a step and a song in his heart, whistling all the way, and just excited to be home and to be doing something besides slopping pigs. And loving his dad as he mended that fence. Or if he was plowing behind two big oxen. I, I don't think he would have been too concerned if he stepped in the, the cow poop on the way you know, down the furrow. I, I, I just think he would have loved every minute of what he was doing. And he would have loved his father as he was doing it. No slavery there. No, no oppression. No, no, you know. Guys... He knew his father loved him. He knew he was accepted. Never again in his life would he doubt his father's love and acceptance. And and this morning, if I could wish anything for you, it would be that you would never again doubt your father's love and acceptance. That you could live from this moment forward from acceptance, not for it. Let me ask you this, how would your life change if you knew you didn't have to perform for God anymore? How would your relationship with your family change? How would your time with the Lord change in in, in your quiet time, whether whether you have it in the evening, the morning, or whenever, if you knew that you were just loved and you were celebrated and the Father, the, the, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus couldn't wait for you to come into his presence so he could fellowship with you? How would that change your devotional time? How would it change the way you approach your job? Your coworkers, your boss. So here's my challenge to you this morning. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Would you do this? If you're doing one of those like reading through the Bible in, in a year kind of deals, don't, don't disrupt that. You just keep reading, just keep doing that. But if you don't have anything that that would be severely disrupted in your quiet time, or maybe you're not even having a quiet time and, and you've thought about wanting to start, let me jumpstart you here and ask you to do this. Would you, would you just for the next seven days read the story of the prodigal son? It's actually the story of the loving father. That's really the story. But read Luke 15, 11 through 32. And, and given some of the things that I've shared about this, Put yourself in in the place of the prodigal. Keep a journal. Write down thoughts that come to mind about how you're experiencing the love of the father, how you're experiencing the, uh, the attitude of the older brother, and what you're feeling about yourself as you walk through that parable. And then go ahead and go to the next morning like I did and imagine some things about what that would be like waking up in your father's house. But I just want to say to you right now, you can live from acceptance from here on because your Father loves you unconditionally. And Jesus has taken care of your debt. He is your robe of righteousness. You have sandals on your feet, you have the family credit card, you have the love and celebration of the Father. You do. So don't ever live for acceptance again, please. Please. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about our church, visit VineyardNorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge.